Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I sat down with my dear friend, Marty Dodson. He is a professional songwriter, a hit songwriter, if you will. Uh, He's also founder, along with Clay Mills, of Songtown, which is an online community of musicians and creatives. Um, And I'll have links for that on the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com. You can can look into Songtown. Uh, Marty has six number one hit singles and over 100 cuts, including Let Me Down Easy, uh, Must Be Doing Something Right, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. His new stuff is uh, that's out right now. He's got a Blake Shelton single, Doing It to Country Songs, For the Party, Big and Rich, Uh, I Don't Want to Let You Go on the Texas Tenors, and a song called Love Me Loud on Tara Shannon's uh, record. Marty is a great guy. He's a former uh, youth pastor. He's one of my most favorite people on the planet. I love sitting down and chatting with Marty. He's very wise. He's very loving. Um, He's incredibly funny. And uh, an all-around great guy. I uh, was really thankful that, that he took some time to, to sit with me and talk. It's been a crazy week. There's massive flooding in Houston right now. And it's really beautiful to see everyone come together to help. Uh, tons of rescue workers are there. People who aren't first responders. I mean, the first responders clearly are there. But just regular folk, regular human beings jumping in. Their trucks hauling boats and and going around and helping people and helping animals get to safety. And it's really beautiful. You can donate money to the Red Cross. Their efforts will continue. So if you feel like donating, uh, Red Cross is going to be, my guess is they're going to be in Houston for quite a while. And I think I read on the news this morning that Louisiana is perhaps also going to have some issues. So, um, yeah. I, I was actually at the grocery store yesterday. Um, I picked up something last night on my way home, and there were two giant U-Hauls being filled with donations of food and toiletries and feminine products and just the basics, water, tons of water, um, and those U-Hauls were going to be taken up to Houston. So it's just it's heartening to see that stuff. Um, the usual order of business, heyhumanpodcast.com. Um, you can find all the links from different episodes, the stuff we talk about, books we reference, movies, you know, the uh, my guests, any of their websites, Facebooks, all that stuff. It's all on the links page. A lot of good information on there. Um, and let's see, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, feel free to follow those things and like those things. Um, I'm on Twitter, Susan Ruthism. Uh, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M. And I don't know if you want to learn more about me, because I never really talk about me a whole lot. I think I did last episode, just because I'm, you know, just to get the word out. Uh, I'm also a painter. You can find my work at vividgallery.org. So V-I-V-I-D-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y. Um, and then, of course, my music website is susanruth.com. And all my music that I've written for myself is at uh, on iTunes under Susan Ruth. So if you want to check that out, please do. And I write songs for lots of other people, and uh, you can find the discography of that on my susanruth.com website for some of the artists that I've written for. 
Follow me on the social medias. Please go to iTunes and rate and review Hey Human Podcast. It would be awesome if you did that. Our numbers are growing. It's so exciting. Um, I'm super stoked. Thank you for listening. Thank you for um, spreading the word. I've been getting a lot of people telling their friends and family and posting about it on Facebook. And it's just super cool. So love you guys and keep listening. If you want to email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. And maybe you have somebody you'd like to recommend for the show. Someone's interesting and has a cool story. Please let me know. I'm always on the lookout. We've got some really exciting episodes coming up. Um, And if you haven't gone back and listened to the back catalog, um, I think this is episode 63. So there's a ton of really fascinating people that I've spoken with. Um, Feel really lucky about that too. Okay, enough about that. Let's get going. Here we go. Hi, Marty Dodson. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for being on Hey Human. I'm glad to be here. I'm really happy about that. Glad to be your guest human. Yes! (laughs) How's it going? Very good. Enjoying your Sunday so far? I am. Marty, you and I have been friends for a very long time. Yes, we have. How long has it been now? 11 years? 10 years? Probably, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Actually, 10 years. Where does the time go? I know. It flies. We were just children when we met. I know. Babes. Look at us now, all grown up. Yeah. 30 is a good year. (laughs) It is. Awesome. Over and over again. Um, So uh, you have a very, obviously you're a hit songwriter and that's really interesting, cool. And I'd love to talk about that. But um, you and I once upon a time started a conversation about what you did pre-songwriter life. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk about that. Where were you you from? What was your upbringing and that kind of thing? So I grew up here in Nashville. Uh, I was born in California, but we, my dad got out of the air force like five months later and we moved to Michigan with my grandparents for a little while and then kind of moved around until he got a job offer in Nashville. So we moved here. You know, I thought you were born here. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That's all right. Apple Valley, California. All right. I Um, won't hold it against you. There you go. Well, um, so I grew up, I lived here since I was five Mm -hmm. and, um, grew up in what I felt like was a pretty normal, kind of middle class, middle to lower middle class home mm-hmm. uh, until I was about 12, at which time I realized there was some weird stuff going on in my family. And um, so I, it, it took a while, I guess, before I started asking the questions of, you know, why is dad not go to work a lot? And, you know, I mean, some things happening. And, was he still he would, military no, he oh, okay. he was an industrial engineer at that oh. time, so he worked at a plant yeah. uh, that made boots. Um, and so there there became this pattern of he would miss work a lot, and then you know he would tell us he was sick, and then he got fired from a job, and that, you know sort of family crisis, and so then he got another job, and but it kind of became this pattern of him getting fired from jobs, and you know, and then money troubles and all that, and so finally I realized as I got a little older that. He had a drug problem. Mm-hmm. He was abusing prescription medications. So, to make to condense the story a little bit, my mom had to go back to school. She got got her RN. She was an associate nurse. She had she had kind of done that just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, working as a nursing tech, I guess. And so she went back to school and worked full time, mm-hmm. and got her RN and began working full-time as an RN. She would work at night so she could be home when we got home from school and cook dinner. Were they still together? 
Yeah, point. they stayed together till they both, you know, till he passed away. Um, but things were like with my dad were more. It got more um, invasive. You know, the drug stuff would be. You know, he would then he started getting in wrecks because he would drive impaired. You know, and uh-huh. then that was, then no alcohol though. It was no just no, just the prescription farm. narcotics. Yeah, yeah, and so. He was kind um, of ahead of his time because that's yeah, real big now. Yeah, he's yeah. a trendsetter. He was. <laughs> um, but so it became more of a, a, you know, it just spread as those things do across the family. You know, it kind of became the family secret of, you know, we, I didn't want to talk about that to people. And I, you know, we were very, I was raised in a very conservative church. And we went to church all the time. We were very involved there. And I didn't know anybody else at church whose dad was a drug addict. So. And was he able to hide that? Was he maintaining that secret? Well, by At this church? time, he didn't, he wasn't going to church by oh. this by this time, and okay. then, and he he couldn't hold job, and you know, and so there was a lot of friction between he and my mom because she's working full time and making money, and he's blowing it all on drugs and that kind of thing, and a lot of stressful, you know, bill collectors calling and all kinds of that, you know, that kind of stuff. Where but, was he getting his drugs? Well, you know, there uh, people who I, I discovered through this whole deal that there's plenty of doctors who will just write you a prescription for whatever you want if you pay them you know so he would he would go to quote legit doctors but there's kind of this underground network that people i guess spread the word this guy will give you whatever you want so they pay for an office visit he writes them up as back pain or whatever and they get a prescription for narcotics, you know. Legalized drug dealing. And back then there wasn't, you know. Now they have a um, a system where you're, you're logged in every time you if you buy a narcotic or if you buy a Sudafed or these things that are abused. You, there's a a system where all pharmacies can see if you're doing it. But what he would do is he would go to a doctor, get a prescription. He would go to a pharmacy and get it filled, and then a few days later he'd go to a different doctor and go to a different pharmacy, uh, and there's no communication between any of those, so yeah. he could just get unlimited narcotics. Things know, have changed. But, I mean, I guess now all the pharmacies talk to each other? Or? Yeah, that's what I mean. The state, I think there's a state okay. system now where you that's know great. when you buy one, you're logged in, so that Kroger could see, oh, he got one at Walgreens two days ago, right. and refuse it. But there was also a network of um, independent pharmacies who would give you whatever. Yeah. You know, and so he he kind of found these places that were shady and they, you know, they would just take your money and Now, what care. year was this? Is mm. this This would have been like um late 70s, I guess. Late 70s. Yeah. Okay. And your dad probably didn't have to go off to Vietnam because he was an engineer, right? No, he was he Too young, maybe. He was on the runway being sent two or three different times and they canceled his group being sent so he never went whoa really yeah. so he was very fortunate in that regard oh my gosh so anyway he would do you know when I was 15 I actually called the you know Tennessee drug enforcement people and told them all these pharmacies and all these doctors you and, did and they were kind of like oh okay we'll look into it and I, and never you know it was really weird I don't know if they thought because I was a kid I didn't know all this stuff did anyone in your family know you were gonna make that phone call no wow that that takes a lot of bravery it, it was know. my way of fighting back a little bit i guess sure. you know i mean it, it was a it's one of those things where you're very helpless to i mean there's nothing much i could do 
about it, you know. So yeah. we would do things like if, you know, if I found his pill bottle hidden in the couch cushion, I might flush him down the toilet or something like that, you know, and put him back. And then he would be enraged, you know, that's who did this and that kind of thing. And he'd get very angry. But, you know, so I guess it was a way of feeling like there was some little bit of control or, or ability to fight back. Did you and your uh, mom have conversations about what was going on with your dad or did she sort of have the don't ask don't tell policy no we had she was i mean she was always very open with me once i asked and you know i mean she didn't volunteer and she was very loyal to him to a fault in my opinion i my brother and i begged her to leave him multiple times Mm -hmm. you know because when things would get really bad or whatever and um she felt like back to that church thing you know she said i told him, I, you know, it's for better or worse, and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we stayed until, you know, when I moved out, when I was 19, I got a job uh, as a youth minister, and they had a, a mobile home beside the church. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can part of my compensation be this mobile home? You know, I could, and it was junker. But I lived in this trailer, so I moved out when I was 19. Was and, your brother still there? He, he stayed there about a week after I moved out, and then he asked if he could move in with me, so he lived with me when he was 16 until he went to college. Wow. Mm-hmm. How did your parents feel about that? Well, I mean, it, my mom didn't like I mean, she didn't like it in the sense that she didn't have her kids around, yeah. but she understood, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we had told her earlier, you know, much earlier in life, we thought she should leave, so yeah. she wasn't at all surprised, you know. And it wasn't far. I mean, it's like she could come visit us or whatever. But what was the? How did you and your brother deal differently with the situation? I mean, you know, most siblings have a, a varying degree of personality. Mm-hmm. I know that for me and my family, my brothers are totally different than I am. So how did did you turn to each other? How did you? No, I mean, I think it was, um, it was more of, uh, and I don't know if this is because I'm older, the older, ch- the oldest child and he's the youngest, if, if that affected that, probably did, but I, I, I think I tried to do more about it and kind of became the man of the house at about 13 by, I mean, I would be, you know, I just took it upon myself to mow the grass or to trim the bushes or I mean just to do things that need to be done around you know and to take care of my brother those kinds of things so I was trying to take take up the slack of things that would typically be you know my dad's job and that kind of thing I think his response was more to ignore that it was happening you know I think there was some denial more Uh, but he and my dad would um, get into more angry arguments and you know more they had one time had a physical confrontation and that kind of thing but i i didn't i didn't get any into any of that i just tried to make the situation as best it could be and yeah you know pretty mm-hmm. much yeah and flush pills when i found them things like that <laughs> <laughs> little passive aggressive things did your dad um stay addicted his whole life well when when my first child was born um I told I just had a conversation with my dad when we were pregnant with with him and said, you know, I'm I'm not going to raise my kids around this, you know, the, the things I saw they're not going to see. So you can choose whether you want grandchildren or you want drugs. And so he 
went into a methadone treatment program, which was still a drug, but it was a he he was he functioned fine on that. So he when he got on the methadone, he could you know he didn't appear high. He didn't you know do all the things that he would you know fall asleep in a conversation and those kinds of things. So yeah, he he got on that was and was great. It was a great grandfather to them and and stayed on that pretty much I guess their whole lives until he until he passed away um he was on the methadone thing but toward the end of his life he got back on some other I guess he was having more pain and got back on the uh some other narcotics too and started kind of headed back the other way so heroin was that his choice no no. my my eldest my half brother my eldest brother he um he did the methadone thing it took him a couple times to quit heroin so I didn't know if that was what the go-to was for, or just doesn't no, matter his, any opioid. He never did heroin. It, his was st- like hydrocodone, okay. and, and you know, which are they're all in the same family, I right. guess. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you and your brother never had any kind of drug issue, no desire because of what you saw. Yeah, I think it was such an ugly, yeah, ugly thing. Yeah. I didn't have a drink of alcohol till I was in my thirties because of that. You know, all just. All of that stuff, you so know. makes sense. Yeah. Did you ever have a conversation with your mother about why? Because your dad passed before your mom, right? No, the other way around. Oh, really? Yeah. Other way around. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you ever talk to your mom about? Like, as an adult, you know, adult perspectives are mm-hmm. always so different. Yeah, I did. I mean, and she was very, you know, she he had been injured when he was in the Air Force. Uh, he was on the wing of a fighter plane and they started it and he and he was thrown off and onto the concrete and that kind of thing and so he claimed that he had back pain from that some some things like that that went on through his life you know but and so she defended that um you know to to me it looked like much more of a choice than a need Mm -hmm. you know yeah that was the same with my brother. It was back pain that started him on the pills, and then they were never strong enough after a while. And right. it's, it's, although he did say quitting cigarettes was harder than quitting heroin. Really? That wow. says a lot about yes, how bad cigarettes are. Um, so, okay, let's go backwards again. Youth pastor. Was mm-hmm. that something when you were a teenager or a kid, you were like, I'm going to grow up and be a pastor? <laughs> No, it was it was actually a, a, a really I didn't think of this until recently. I, w- I was doing some this self awareness stuff with some corporations with the corporate work that I do, and um, I, I realized that I had never chosen that job. So I had when I, when all the stuff was going on with my dad, there was a youth minister at our church that I became really close to, and so you know he kind of became a father figure to me, and uh, you know mentor I guess mm-hmm. and so I, I started when he asked if I would be willing to work with him sort of as an intern one summer so I did that and then he wound up going to another church and getting a job somewhere else out of, out of town and the church asked me if I would fill in for him so I filled in for him because I'd been working with him and that went well so they asked me if I'd stay on for a while so I did that and then in college I got another offer from somebody else to do youth ministry so I went to this other place and then when I graduated they offered me a full-time job with the trailer did you study and theology in college I was a um, well see I was doing the youth ministry before I went to college so 
um, when I went to college, I started off, um, I was going to be a dentist. And then I decided I didn't want to do that. I, I, I kind You'd of decided. You'd be a good dentist. You're, know, you know, you'd have a good bedside manner pe- People's for mouths. I, don't I like know. Pe- well, there's that. There's that. But your you personality. You'd, well, be a, you. you'd be a kind dentist, I feel like. But I, I just decided I, I wanted to be a dentist because they it seemed like they made a lot of money and they didn't have to work very hard. And I thought, you know, that's not, probably not a great life program, <laughs> you know, not, not a great motivation. So I, I was interested in psychology um, I was doing the youth ministry, so I thought, well, you know, if, if I keep doing the youth ministry, psychology would be a good major to have, mm-hmm. and then I minored, so I minored in Bible, so I kind of had a, a minor in Bible, major in psychology, but really, I guess during college, kind of thought, well, I keep getting offered these jobs, so maybe I should do this, you know, so um, I just kept taking those jobs, and about 10 years later, I woke up one day, and it was like, wait, I didn't pick, and I didn't necessarily pick this, you know, I think I enjoyed it in some aspects, and I, I think I was good at it in some ways, but um, I, I had this kind of early midlife thing, I guess, where I went, this is not what I, really what I chose to do. Was this pre-children, pre-marriage? No, this was when children started coming along, you know, because it became a, the times that I had to work with the kids at church were times when they were out of school, which meant nights or weekends. And yeah. then, so I'm not with my kids as much on nights or weekends. And so, you know, I just, it, it became uh, something I did, you know, I thought, I want to figure out what I want to do, not what is just the easiest, you know, thing that the path of least keeps, resistance. Yeah. Well, I am curious. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I know any youth pastors. So, um, what, what does that mean exactly? What is the responsibility of a youth pastor? What it what was your day to day? You get the call from God so, in the morning. Talk to God in the morning. Then you <laughs> get the do, itinerary. You know, call people and you go. Here's what God wants you to do. No, um, I was in charge not to do. <laughs> that's right. Most specifically. Um, so I was in charge of all programming for um, seventh through twelfth grades. Okay. Which so so I was in charge of their Sunday school classes and their making sure we had teachers, making sure, you know, setting the curriculum. I was in charge of planning activities like retreats or summer camp and, you know, all the those no things. The no masturbating game. All, all those <laughs> things, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I would just plan everything um, involving the teenagers at church. Yeah. It yeah. must have been really interesting. I mean, teenagers in general, highly you know, emotional, you know, their hormones are going crazy. They're not thinking straight. They're always hungry or tired. You know, it's, it's wrangling bears basically. I I really enjoyed it more than I did working with adults in, in that there was a, um, a purity of, they didn't know what questions you weren't supposed to ask or they didn't know that you weren't supposed to ask why we do things this way. You know, I think. Did they ask a lot? Yeah, they did. They ask a lot of questions. You That's know, that, great. That, you know, like I don't understand why they say you can't do this. You know, and so where the, it, most of the adults were like, well, that's just what we do. You know, I mean, it was nice to have that to catch them when they're kind of forming their own thoughts and to really be able to encourage them to think on their own and sure. maybe not necessarily. Was critical thinking part of how you went about it? Were you, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I do think that it. My parents were great with us. That you know, they said we can't tell you what to believe. We'll tell you all the options. We'll tell you all the things going on in the universe, and then it's 
up to you and we'll support mm-hmm. you with whatever. And I feel like that's your personality as well. Um, did you have some moments where the kids were like, this God doesn't thing doesn't make sense to me. And then how did you deal with stuff like that? Yeah. Cause I imagine you have a job description where you have to sort of keep the flock together. You mm-hmm. know? Well, you're, you're sort of a, and this became the rub that eventually led to me getting out of it in some many ways is that you're the poster boy for something. And so if the poster boy starts to change his viewpoint or teach something different, then that causes problems, you know? So, um, I, th- I think I grew into, you know, when I was 19, 18, 19, I was working at the churches. I think I was very conservative. My, my parents had, um, my mom had always taught me, I mean, there was no racism in our home or no um, judgmental attitudes. There was not gossip or, you know, so I was always taught to treat everybody with respect. Um, and in fact, one time I had a friend at school who was um, Korean and he invited me to come over to his house and, and play. And I asked my mom if I could do that. And she said, sure. You know, So I went to his house and played. And she said, why don't you invite him over here next week? And his parents wouldn't let him come to our house because we were white. And I that just didn't compute with me as a kid. I was probably seven. And But they said, you can't. he can't come to your house. You can, you can come here, but we can't come to your house. And I, I just didn't understand that because we had never, you know, they had never told me that black kids can't come to our house or Korean yeah. kids or you know right, sure. any of that so that was kind of my first experience with racism but so my family in that regard was very open-minded and progressive I, I felt yeah. like for the time but religiously the churches we went to were very very straight-laced like you know you're going to go to hell if you use an instrument in worship or you know, wow, really? Yeah, I mean, so wait, just, okay. which which church is that? There, Church I have, of Christ. Church of Christ. So you're allowed mm-hmm. to sing. You're just not allowed to sing to a piano or a guitar right. or whatever. Right. What? And why is that? I always wonder because about God that. hates it. God no. hates no. instruments. No. Well, the, the, <laughs> the scripture that they used was a scripture that says, "Sing and make melody in your heart." So they took that to mean you can't use anything else. And mm. I became one of those people that questioned, like, well, if we have a songbook. In that other than your heart, like, shut up, kid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't ask that question. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I, I I think I started off in a in a really conservative place, and I kind of grew into probably from being asked these questions by teenagers that I didn't have a good answer to. You know, because I've I've never been a person who who's willing to go. Well, just because you know, I mean, I, I want. I wanted to be able to give them a reason, and if I honestly looked at it and saw that there wasn't a reason, then I'm, yeah, that kind of shook my framework, I guess. So, I think I kind of grew into a more um, open, um, critical thinking type person, and started thinking for myself more mm-hmm. from being in that position of having to answer those questions. So, did you have a? I know that your mentor that you had in the beginning left to go to another church, but as the kids are asking you these questions and you're starting to question did you have somebody that you could go to and say this a plus b is not equaling c to me right you know what a few not not a lot because in our you know church of christ groups i guess mm-hmm. it was pretty conservative you know so i i became one of the most progressive liberal i guess 
youth ministers in Churches of Christ, um, and because of that, was able to do some cool stuff, to kind of to open some minds to different things. I think, um, which may, I guess maybe was the reason I was there at that time. I sure. Don't know. But yeah, the people that, were you also vilified for that? I imagine mm-hmm. there were some folks not too thrilled about oh, it. Oh yeah, there was. There were numerous people that tried to get me fired and you know various things like that. So Harper Valley PTA is very exciting. Very much so. Sometimes <laughs> I joke with people, not not really joking, but that I. I got out of church work and went into the music business because music's so much less corrupt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's very good. Um, did you go to Lipscomb? Is that where you went to college? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, I did. Yeah. That's, that's a good school. Right? It's a very good school. Yeah. yeah. And it's it has opened up a lot since I was there, too. I mean, I suppose that makes when sense. I was there, you couldn't wear shorts. Really? And things like Boys that. Boys or girls. Yeah. Nobody could wear shorts, yeah. Times have changed. Now shorts are very short. Some of them are, yes. Yes, they almost look like underpants. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> How did, um, well, I guess it's a two question. Uh, so your children are lovely. I know well, that. thank you. Yes. Um, and I, the background that you've had with the family dynamic, having that tumultuous childhood, and then the religious setting, how did that shape you as a father? What did? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think I saw a lot of things, obviously, from my dad that I did not want to copy. <laughs> you know, I think he gave me a lot of uh, opposite role model. You know, things of here's what you don't do. Yeah. But I, um, I, I think I was a little. I had a little more anxiety about what do you do. You know, when, when uh, my first child was born, I had never changed a diaper. You know, I didn't. So, I mean, I had no, like, nurturing skills, I don't think. I think I have a nurturing heart, maybe, spirit. But, Absolutely. But I had no nurturing skills, so I, I had to work really hard. I read a lot of books, which is kind of what I've, I've always done in, in, like, because of, you know, my mom and dad had a very tumultuous marriage, that, you know, and, and all that. So I would read a lot of books about marriage and about relationships, trying to find those good role models of okay well I know what's not supposed to look like what what should it look like yeah so I did a lot of that with parenting I read a lot of parenting books and that kind of thing but you know I think you know when they came along too I just um thought well I'm gonna give this everything I've got you know I want to give them a much different experience than I had and I want to um shield them from that kind of thing going on in the home. You know, I didn't want us to have, like, this family secret kind of thing like we had growing up, you know, so. Was it difficult? Um, I feel like when you grow up in that sort of environment, um, having experienced myself in it, um, that learning how to be in an intimate relationship after that is really difficult. It it takes a lot of growth and a lot of self-reflection and learning just to navigate even some of the most basic things like conversation mm-hmm. or confrontation without <laughs> screaming or whatever yeah. you know you develop a sense that love equals this one thing when in fact that's not the thing <laughs> at all so how did did your wife at the time obviously you're not married to her anymore but did your wife at the time understand where you were coming from or do you feel like you kept that insular within yourself and you just came at it um, I think I kept a lot of it in. 
uh, as, as time went by, I revealed more and more. But I think as a, as I revealed things, I didn't get the feedback that she was all that interested in helping unpack that luggage, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I think I packed some of it back up, you know. And I mean, I think it's something I'm still I still struggle with, you know. If I if I'm in a conversation with someone where they are passionate and they are kind of you know leaning in to me. To me, that triggers me, and it you know it, it freaks me out because my I go back to that place with my dad and um, you know yelling and all that, and so to me it feels like that's the first step to escalating into to the other, you know. So mm-hmm. I I kind of shut down, and you know, so it, I have to. It's something I'm still working on. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate those waters of you know allowing my partner to be um, passionate and upset without me taking that as you're you're about to start screaming and throwing things you know right it is fascinating isn't it it seems i often think the process of growing up and growing wise and understanding and really embracing what love means the unconditional kind you know the it, it really is a lifetime experience mm-hmm frustrating isn't it yes it is well you know and the the older i get and the more i talk about my family scenario the more i find that more people than not have things i mean just they have baggage they have difficult things you know and that i just rarely meet anybody that goes no it was all perfect growing up in our family nobody ever fought you know we we didn't have any money problems we didn't no substance problems you know and all the kids were perfect you know that but at the time, when you're going through it, it feels like I don't hear anybody else talking about this, you know. So it, it was a very lonely feeling of mm-hmm. um, I don't know who to talk to about this and you know what to do about it. I'm always suspect those people that say their family life was so perfect because mm-hmm. if you scratch under the surface, I bet you could uncover some stuff that maybe they didn't even know was going on or something. Yeah, I think those are the psycho killers. They, yes. One day they just snap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, Ted Bundy, good example. Apparently, he supposedly had a great upbringing. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> and I Theory mean, proven. He turned out okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so you're in a you're in a religion that eschews musical instruments. How did you did you sneak your guitar playing? How did you turn to that and become? No, there. It wasn't that they were against playing musical instruments. It was just not to God. So you could sing secular songs, not at church, but, you know, so there was no instruments at church, but it was not that they were opposed to instruments. Oh, okay. Their view was just that God wants you to sing. In church. From your heart. In, in, from your heart. Right. Yes. And so. And your diaphragm. If, yeah, from your diaphragm. <laughs> and if you were going to sing um, songs to God on your own time, mm-hmm. you risk, I mean, the that's rap. between you and God, but sure. probably that's not cool. Yeah. Better have you a know. tuner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. Wow. So, how did you? How old were you when you picked up an instrument and started? Eleven. Eleven. Mm-hmm. Were you? Were you always creative? Yes, I, I've always loved words, um, and that's still the the piece of songwriting that I'm way better at than than melodies is is the words. And so, like when I was in sixth grade, they had a contest of like a freedom. America rah-rah contest or something, you're supposed to write a patriotic essay. 
and they had some prizes or whatever that you could win, and I forgot to do it, which I was so upset because I loved that. So my teacher said, I'm going to take up your essays, and while she was taking them up, I wrote one, and I won for the whole school. And so I was like, that was weird. You know, maybe I have a talent with words, and I kind of, I had a grandmother who would, um, I guess when I was about seven or eight, she started sending me blank notebook notebooks and she would tell me to fill them up with poetry and then send them to her so or writing so i'd write little short stories i write poems and i would send them to her and she would get them published in her newspaper and, and she lived in a smaller town that's so it, awesome yeah so she she would send me these newspaper clippings with my name and the poem oh. and all that kind of stuff so she really i think was the first influence that encouraged me to write and then as i got those things happening in school i thought well i seem to be pretty good with words you know so what was, a great idea to, to do. Mm-hmm. All you nanas out there and babies and all, what are all the different grandma nicknames? Mammals. <laughs> Mammals. <laughs> That's right. That's a really great idea. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'm, that's one I want to do with my grandchildren someday. Did you, have you, um, I, I'm assuming your grandmother's passed. Mm-hmm. Did, did you get those back? The yes, journals? I do have some of them, yeah. That must be incredible to go through that stuff. Yeah, and she and she left notebooks full of stories about relatives that I had not even known and her parents and her grandparents and all that kind of thing. So it was a neat um, legacy thing, I guess, between her and me. That's that's really cool. How old were you when you wrote your first song? Eleven. Oh, so you out of the yeah. gate. Yeah. Do you remember what it was about? I think it was about the girl up the street. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> there was a girl up the street that she didn't notice me, but so I had to write, you know. Did it work? How do you like me now? <laughs> no. I never played it for her. I would, I would have been real chicken to play that for her. Yeah. So when did you start performing? Oh, well, I, I didn't start performing really until, well, I worked at some church camps, like an all-summer camp kind of thing, like lasted all summer. Mm. Um, and we would sit around and play like around the fire at night and that kind of thing, you know. So I, I did some of that. And I did a talent show once in high school, but I didn't really per- start performing until I got a songwriting deal as a staff writer. I, I'd never really desired to be a, a performer at all. So if we go backwards a little bit, you're, you've you've just you've woken up one day and said, oh, this church pastor stuff isn't for me after 10 years. What, what did, where did that epiphany lead you? Did it lead you straight into the, the gates of hell of songwriting? <laughs> well, um, what I did, I read a book called What Colors Your Parachute. It's a great book um, that's been republished like 20 times or something. Um, but it's about finding your passion and finding a career that aligns with your passion. So I read that book. And I realized, you know, it, it asks you all these questions. You fill out all these things. And when I got to the end, the thing that it came up with that I should do is songwriting. And I thought, okay, I'm in Nashville. You know, the reason I had not done it is because everybody working on our air conditioner, the cable guy, the waitresses, were all trying to be songwriters. So growing up, I didn't have any connection. And I, I just went to college and got, you know, got a degree because that's what you do instead of chasing that, you know, mm-hmm. looking back, I wish I had had the courage to try it, you know, early. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I was mid- early thirties when I started trying. And what happened? So, uh, I guess for about two years, I, I quit being the youth pastor and my ex-wife went to work full time 
And Although we, we current kind of, at that time. Current at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so we um, kind of tag team parents. So she would, on the days she worked, I would write on the days, um, you know, yeah. opposite. So um, we did that for about two years, and then I got a um, staff writing deal, making a little bit, like $866 a month. And That's an interesting number. I know. I forget. It worked out to like some even amount, but... Um, so I started writing for Kim Williams, who's a Hall of Fame songwriter that just passed away recently. Um, and he became really a mentor. I mean, uh, he, he wasn't just my publisher. He, he really taught me how to write. He taught me how the business works, taught me, you know, what choices to make, why certain things were smart or not smart, all those kinds of things. So he was invaluable to me in that regard. And while I was with him, I got my first hit song, which was Rascal Flatts, While You Loved Me, which was their first ballad. Went to top, went number seven. So that was a huge deal at the time and more money than I had ever seen in, in one place. $966. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, when I was a youth minister, my, the highest I ever made was $30,000 a year. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got a, got a big check for that song and it was like, Whoa. Wow, what what in the world? Yeah. Wow. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The way how um so your psychology major mm-hmm. and Bible. How does that influence your writing? You know, the I think the psychology's been invaluable because I'm you know, I'm always when you're writing you're trying to think what is the reaction gonna be to this song, you know, what what's this gonna cause people to feel? Um and the psychology comes in very handy there of, you know, just knowing what drives people and what motivates people and how people think, all those kinds of things. So I, I think I use that every day. Yeah. Do you have a favorite child of, of songs? A favorite song? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite child is. They're all great. Yeah. No, I meant all my song, children. song children. Um, there's a song I wrote called Fire It Up that I love. Um, it deals a little bit with racism talks just about love in general and like kind of poses the question what's the harm in loving everybody you know what how would that be bad you know and it was joe cocker's last number one too which is cool wow that was a career highlight absolutely does it ever get old do you ever think eh? and then something happens and you don't get that fire is it always fire fire you up <laughs> <laughs> to hear someone sing my song yeah, yeah. No, I think it's still kind of surreal every time. You know, I, I um, there are artists like Joe Cocker um, that were sort of iconic to me or, you know, just people that I would buy their records and then they're recording my songs, you know. Like Don Williams did one of my songs and the Oak Ridge Boys, you know, and I grew up listening to those people. And so to hear them sing it is just amazing. And it, But also, you know, I mean, to hear... Even a young artist says, hey, I want to do that song, you know, or they they sing it is amazing to me. I think the coolest thing is actually being somewhere and hearing the song and hear, have people sing along. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's the coolest thing is it, uh, just to be at a concert where, where the artist is singing it and to see people singing along to it and you go, oh, wow, I remember what happened the day we wrote that and, you know, what the things we were laughing about and, sure. and all that. It's cool. You know, a lot of times I feel uh, we write songs, and at least this works for me, write a song and then realize after the fact that you were talking to yourself the whole time in the song. 
the little speaking of psychology, like little therapy sessions. Do you get that a lot? Where yeah, you lot. look at the song and realize your subconscious is trying to teach you or tell you something. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to sit growing up. We had a a stairwell going into our basement, and I I found that if you sit on the fourth step, you got this real cool echo reverb like thing. Um, and so I would sit there on that fourth step and and play my songs and and all that and that was that was my therapy it was I was you know it's where I um I was never good at dating and relationships and all those kind of things and so I could write about the girls that didn't notice me at school or you know all those things and, and um that was definitely my therapy yeah did I know you were older when you got into the songwriting thing professionally but did your parents were they the classic parents saying, "Why don't you be a doctor or something?" Or were they supportive about it? Did they did they even bring it up? Or they were always very supportive. I mean, my mom especially told me, you know, she always said, you know, you you can be whatever you want to be. You're smart. You're hard worker. You know, and you can do. And so I would joke and say, "What about the NBA?" Because I'm five six. And and she'd say, "You know, if you want to do that, I believe you could do it." You know. Hey, there's Mookie Blaylock. Yeah, I know. See. <laughs> And and so I mean I, I think I grew up with the idea that you can do anything you want to do, but I and with their blessing to do that. And no, they they were thrilled that I found something I was excited about, you know. And I, I think I'm sure there was uh, some anxiety on their part about well, how will he ever make money at that? You know what what's going to happen there? But if there was, they never mentioned it to me. Yeah. Did you have a a moment? Of as an adult going back and sitting down with your dad and saying, "Hey, this really screwed up my childhood," or did you leave that, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the forgiveness moment, as Oprah would say? Mm-hmm. We had, I mean, we had a number of really straightforward talks. I mean, it, you know, like I, I told you about the one with when my kid, my first child, was coming along, about yeah. just kind of giving him an ultimatum. But sure, um, yeah, I mean there were times toward the end of his life where we had conversations about you know this was really hurtful to me um these these things have been hard to get over mm-hmm. and you know he he cried and was sad that he had done those things but then he the next time I saw him he'd be high mm-hmm. you know what I mean so um I, I don't think any of that was ever resolved other than I think I I told him what I needed to say you know and then the rest was on him kind of thing have you forgiven him for everything do you think um I don't think I mean in some ways I don't know how you forgive someone I don't hold a great animosity toward him I'm able to appreciate that he was a great grandfather um and he did some very generous things for people that I saw, you know. And so I, I, I see, a, I think it's in perspective more than it's, um, mm. you know, I don't think he did any, I think he loved me. I don't think he did any of it. He was always a, a very generous person saying he loved you, you know. And so he, I was, it was never one of those where you felt like he's a cold, hard guy and you don't, you know, can't get in there, you know. So I, I feel like he loved me and, I can't explain why he did what he did. I didn't. I don't like it, and I felt like he chose that over us mm-hmm. on a number of occasion, occasions. You know, so 
I don't know where to put that exactly, but I don't, you know, I don't hate him. I don't, you know, when I, when I think about him, there's a lot of unpleasant memories associated with him, but, you know, I don't think there's anger or malice or so. And I guess in that sense, I've forgiven him. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated when our parents Mm -hmm. who are supposed to be parental, (laughs) (laughs) you know, mature mature and have it together, you know, there's that moment in adulthood or, you know, maybe late adolescent where you suddenly realize, oh, wait, they're human. They're Mm -hmm. not superheroes. They're not perfect. Wait, what? I want a refund. (laughs) It's, It's a weird, surreal thing. Well, I think, too, having now seen all my kids are pretty much out of the house. And so looking back on mistakes I made as a parent. Like what? Um, I, I think being um, maybe too strict with the rules early on. Maybe um, not try, not listening as well as I should listen, you know. Uh, when there was a problem, trying to deal with the problem and trying to deal with, instead of dealing with the child, you know, and, and what's behind it, mm. that if I, if I was doing it now, I'd have a lot more wisdom. You know, I think at the time you're just trying to survive and get through it. Yeah. But, but having seen those things, I go, well, I wasn't a perfect dad either. You know, it's hard, it's hard to say someone else should have been a perfect dad if you're not one. So, yeah, I think that, that gave me a little more perspective on it as well. Hmm. Was it um? Well, do you believe in um? You believe in God now, mm-hmm. yes. Do you I believe do. in uh, the traditional heaven sense where when you when you die you'll see people again? Do you believe in reincarnation? What's what's your belief system? Or do you know? I don't know. Okay, yeah, that's a fair answer know. too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I I grew up obviously with the very strict traditional view of there's a hot hell and there's a good heaven you know and and you're going to be in one place or the other but i don't know i mean that you know there's the older i get the less i know about that kind of thing you know and and i think um when you know a lot of things that people go on and on about on facebook about you know climate change or whatever we don't know really we don't know and and so you know I, I try to be very cautious about speaking out on things I don't know about and and to be much more quick to say hmm. you know what I'm not smart enough to talk about that with you I'm sorry yeah <laughs> you know well, I, don't, I don't know that it's a question of smarts but ignorance I think You're just not knowing something well educated I mean smart educated, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think human beings across the board have this strange hang up about admitting when they don't know stuff mm-hmm. um, or pontificating as if you know way more than you do just to win an argument. I read something the other day. It was a little quote, which I'm going to, of course, completely annihilate because I can't remember exactly what it said other than the gist of it was, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. dealing with another person? It's okay to say, you know what? I don't know. And you know what? I don't need to be right. Mm -hmm. For me, religion falls into that I don't need to be right category because I I don't know. I have what they call faith and the things that I have faith in, but that works for me. And Mm. why? It's a very curious thing. I don't understand why we're so hell-bent, pardon the pun, on, on forcing people to think like we think to... 
And that that was my biggest issue, I think, with the church work as as time went on was, um, you know, when when my son was born, he he was four years old when my daughter was born, and and by that time I thought I pretty much got this parenting down, you know. And then she comes along, nothing worked. That worked with him, it didn't work with her. Discipline didn't work the same way. Feeding him didn't work, you know, all these things. And then, so then another daughter comes along and I think, okay, I got boys and girls figured out. She's completely different. Yeah. You know, and and so it made me think about the church stuff of, you know, I really believe that the people who have the deepest faith are the people who work out their own belief system, you know, that, that works for them, that makes sense to them, and that feels true to them. And if you're at a church that says, well, you can't do it that way. You got to do it this way. Everybody has to do it this way. It's kind of like taking your kids and going, well, I'm sorry. This worked for this kid. This is going to work for you. You know, and that's why so many people get hurt by churches. That's why so many people leave churches and so many people are not there on Sundays because Mm -hmm. what feels true and honest to them is being painted as not a legit deal, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point it's it's like education not all children learn the same Hmm. and not all people worship the same not all it's it's so it's very wise and I think that that's probably what made you such a good pastor was that when kids said this doesn't make sense why that you actually heard what they were saying and didn't I mean I got kicked out of Sunday school when I was a kid because I kept asking they finally got fed up with all the questioning Mm-hmm. But you know, if you don't know, then you don't know, and right. that's when. And if you can't ask, you either just bite the bullet and accept what they tell you, or you leave. Or you get pissed that you have to bite the bullet, and then right. there's a resentment building up, mm-hmm. which again is true with anything. You take religion out of it, insert any kind of com- you know education, relationship, anything. I got kicked out of a music row. Bible study one time. <laughs> you did, and I was, I was the one, only one in the room who was had been a pastor. That's amazing. Yeah, but they <laughs> they had said they were saying um, that's so funny. This guy was talk was talking about how to witness to your friends, and he said, um, I think the guy's name was Arthur Glick. That's a was fantastic an, name. Was an archie He said archaeologist Arthur Glick says that no archaeological find has ever disputed anything in the Bible. And everyone in the room went, whoa, that's powerful. Whoa, I mean, they were going on and on about it. And I just raised my hand and said, who's Glick? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, my friends are going to say, who's Glick? Who is he? Where did he go to school? Was he? They didn't know. And they said, you know, it seems like you're just trying to stir things up in here. So it'd probably be better if you didn't come back. Critical thinking right. zero. Yeah. <laughs> you, or so that was my to... first and last visit. Oh man. Said the Bible study. Didn't you get uh, turned away from your church too when things went not so great with the ex-wife? Um, not really. I mean, I, they didn't tell me I couldn't come. They, they just got you know, I, I went through a divorce, and they said because you were a. A former minister, we're gonna make an example of you because we we want we don't want people to think that it's okay to get a divorce. So, glass houses and stuff, mm-hmm. and stuff, and yeah. rocks and all all the stuff. Yeah, it breaks it breaks my heart, as they say. 
Can't we all just get along? I know. Ah. I have a song called Why Can't We All Get Along and Drink Beer. There you go. See? I like it. That would be happy times. That would be happy. Oh, well, except for I'm a celiac, mm. so. Cider. Hard cider. Gluten free beer. Yeah. Ugh. Actually, you you turned me on to that one, Omission. Uh huh. I did. Yeah. That's pretty good beer. Yes. I like, you know, gluten free beer is good when it's super cold. Mm-hmm. The minute it. It crosses that line into, <laughs> yes, to room temperature. It's not good at no, all it's anymore, not. and yeah. it's bitter and blah, yucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of other. See, it, it's funny because when I've had a few people on the show where what they have done in their current life is is famous. You know, you are famous in your career path or your choice of careers. Um, and it almost seems redundant to ask you about the stuff that's been asked a billion times, you know, in every interview you've ever done and every conversation you've ever had, you know, everybody asks you the same questions. Mm. But that being said, um, this, the way things are these days in the industry and, you know, everybody's got their opinion. Um, and you, I'd like to actually promote the, you and Clay Mills have the song town. Mm-hmm. And which is great. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? Or, you know, yes. fear of being redundant so, and have you have to answer that question a million yeah, times. So but. Clay and I have both been songwriters for a long time. Um, he had a bunch of Darius Rucker hits, and um, but we we were talking one day and we had had a friend who'd been ripped off by somebody in Nashville, and we just were talking about how it was embarrassing to have people come to Nashville thinking they're chasing my dream and they get ripped off by some scam artist, you know. And so we we jokingly said, well, what if we, we were talking about why people fall for that? And it's because they tell them they're great, you know. So they say, oh, you're amazing. Your songs are awesome. Give us twenty five hundred dollars, and we'll do a demo for you, you know, and take all your publishing. And so we jokingly said, well, what would happen if you started a website and you told people the truth that your song sucks, and that's why you're not getting any interest in your song but here's how to make your song better and so we were like aha that would never work people won't do that but we kind of kept the conversation going and finally thought well let's start a facebook page and just see if we can do that you know so we started facebook page telling people here's how much demos should cost here's kind of how the system works you know if someone wants this that's unreasonable and and so then people started giving us questions that they had and sharing their stories about being ripped off and that kind of thing. And so it grew into, um, we now have like over 20, 22, 23,000 people on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and we so we started a website that's a subscription site where we do mentoring and we do online classes. And we just finished a, like a three-week staff writer crash course where we had a, a publisher come in and work with everybody as if they were staff writers, mm-hmm. gave them assignments, graded their assignments, told them what worked and what didn't. And so, so we're 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 always just trying to help people understand how to write better and how the business works. So um, our our laughing idea of would people respond if we tell them the truth? We found we found that you know early on we had some people say, well, so and so told me my songs are amazing. And we knew so-and-so was a scam person, and we would say, well, go ahead and work with so-and-so, but we're telling you, here's what's wrong, you know, and some of those people came back to us and some didn't. But we've got um, a really overwhelmingly positive community of people who just really want to get better, and so they're mm-hmm. open to hearing the truth, and they want to know if the song's not good, Yeah, that kind of thing. So It is, I think, placation 
doesn't last very long, you know? Especially if Lasts as long as your wallet. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. And you've had a couple of, like, rising stars in there, too, right? There's been some... Yeah, we've had some people get writing deals. We've had mm-hmm. some people get cuts on major labels. We had somebody get a cut on an artist that I wrote with and did not get a cut. <laughs> ah. um, but, yeah, we got some people that are really rocking on there. That's so great. Songtown.com? Uh-huh. That's right, That's yeah. the website. And then it's Songtown USA on Facebook. Do you get any flack from any of the other... Um, from the other songwriting mentorship things in town, because I mean it's a small town, really. Mm-hmm. You don't wake up with you know a broken guitar in your bed or anything. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Not that I know of. I That's mean, there might, people might talk behind our back. I don't mm-hmm. know, but I mean, I feel like we bless your heart have established. I mean, <laughs> I think we've established our credibility, and we're the only current pro writers that I know of that are doing something like this. So you know, the other people that are doing it are people that tried to be songwriters and weren't successful or they were, you know, formerly were in the, in the business or something, you know. Sure. So we kind of feel like we have our own little niche and we're not trying to compete with anybody or yeah. knock anybody down. You know, I think a lot of the other, we love NSAI. I think they do great stuff. Yeah. And, you know, so we're not, we don't, we don't feel like we're in competition with anybody. Have you gone to the Hill, Capitol Hill as a no, songwriter? No, I have volunteered, but I haven't gone Yeah. Yet. So invaluable, I think. Mm-hmm. You'd be great at that. Surprised they haven't tapped you for that yet. I think yet. I would enjoy it. Yeah, I feel like you. Hate wearing a suit though. <laughs> Might be a whole a drawback. <laughs> Maybe to take one for the team. <laughs> Maybe I guess. Yeah, Marty, this has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, send me any kind of links you want me to put on. I every I always put stuff on the HeyHumanPodcast.com. I'll link to Songtown. Oh, cool. And then. Anything My else? website needs to be updated badly, but it's MartyDotson.com. Okay, MartyDotson. Yeah. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you send me, not make you, but you know, I'm gonna wow. ask if bossy. you. I know. Um, I'm wearing very short, short bossy pants. No. <laughs> See, I brought that around. <laughs> um, books that you could recommend oh, to awesome. folks. Okay. Um, that one, the parachute one, sounds interesting. Yeah, it's great. Most of the time, I feel like I forgot to pack my parachute, so I'm, I'm <laughs> free falling. Yes, I'm curious to know what number I would get in the number sixteen. You should be a you know, whatever mm. it is, pastry chef. That's right, maybe so. That'd be a bummer one for a celiac. When I was in middle school, they had this really crude system of like there there weren't even computers. This shows how old I am, but they had these punch cards, like computer punch card kind of things, mm. and you took this test, and then it you would put this pin through all these cards and the ones would fall off that didn't apply to your thing. So it was like a job, you know, you're supposed to tell you what jobs you yeah. should do. Yeah. And the the fewer cards you had, the better you had done answering and the more accurate it was supposed to be. And my best friend got um, race car driver and midwife. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very traumatic. Oh. I think he's in prison now. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I wonder what you would have to pick to have midwife be the. I have no idea. Likes, likes children. Likes moisture and children. Oh my gosh, Marty! Thank you for being on Hey Human. I love you dearly. <laughs>